When 29-year-old Frankie Pullian was killed in a hit-and-run crash, the responding officers thought something didn't look quite right. So they carefully processed and documented the scene, in spite of the medical examiner seeing this as an open-and-shut case. Then an insurance investigator started asking questions, and the police hunch was proven correct. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to Crime Lines. I want to say a big thank you to everyone who came out to the Vegas meetup. I know that a lot of you were already there for CrimeCon. It's not like you traveled just to see me, but I do appreciate you coming up and saying hi. It was great to meet so many people. And also there were just so many podcasters there. I want to say hello to all the podcasters that I finally got to meet in person. The next meetup is going to be in Anchorage in the first week in June. I have the information in the show notes for that, as well as August is the True Crime Podcast Festival. It's going to be amazing. So all that information is in the show notes. I can't possibly travel everywhere to meet everyone on everyone's schedule. So I will be doing some virtual meetups in June, and I will announce how to do those. I run them through Patreon. So the information will be coming out in the next few weeks. Let's get on to this week's show because this is a podcast idea I had. That's where this case comes from. I wanted to do a podcast where I cover cases that are presented on Forensic Files episodes or other, you know, 20-minute long, quick, true crime TV shows. But then I would give you the rest of the story. Especially with forensic files, it's so focused and centered around the forensics, so they don't cover other important pieces of the case, and they almost always brush over the legal aspects, which sometimes are the most interesting parts. I'll watch an episode, I look up the case to find out that that 20 minutes of content on the episode just scratched the surface, and we have so much more to talk about and delve into. But then I realized I actually have a podcast where I can do that. There's no reason I can't do that here on Crime Lines from time to time when I come across a case on a TV show that I want to know more about. I don't have a niche here at Crime Lines, which in one way is hard. It's hard to build a general true crime show because there's so many of them. But on the other hand, it also means I can do what I want and present the cases that I think are interesting and have something we can learn from them. I have so many ideas for podcasts, to be honest, and not nearly enough time to make more than one. So it's probably for the best that Crime Lines isn't boxed into any one type of case or one type of format, and I can just do everything here where my audience already is. So all that to say that this case does come from forensic files, but the majority of the sources used were Passaic County, New Jersey area newspapers like the News, the Herald News, and the Record. All specific articles used can be found in the sources, which are always linked in my show notes. On Tuesday, April 8th, 1980, two police officers were patrolling in an industrial area of Patterson, New Jersey. They passed a dead-end street around 4 a.m. and saw nothing out of place. But just over two hours later, they came back around to the same area, and this time they saw a man's legs 
sticking out from under a 1976 Ford Maverick. They checked on the man and realized he was dead. Because the upper half of the man's body was under the car by the rear wheels, they initially believed the man was the victim of a vehicle-pedestrian collision. The man was identified as 29-year-old Franklin Pullian. Frankie had grown up in Patterson, and except for a short stint in the military, he lived there his entire life. And when I say his time in the military was a short stint, I mean really short. He enlisted in the Army in 1977 and went to basic training at Fort Dix. But Frankie didn't last long. He was discharged from basic training on the grounds of being unsuitable for the military. Now, the specific reason was that he had an intellectual disability. Frankie had been in special education classes all through school, and though he did graduate high school, it was with a modified curriculum. While in school, Frankie's IQ was tested in the mid-60s, which indicates an intellectual disability. It was possible, though, that his actual IQ was higher. It is well accepted that standardized and IQ tests, particularly in the 1960s and 70s, had a cultural bias. And Frankie, who was Black and lived below the poverty line, was at a disadvantage when taking these tests. So we cannot assume that he had a properly administered IQ test. However, he did have an intellectual disability to some degree, and that is why he was discharged from the Army. Frankie really wanted to be in the Army, so he tried to re-enlist. He used the name Pullian Franklin, just swapping his first and last names, But obviously, this was spotted, and he was not allowed to enter the service. In around 1978, Frankie took a job at a local funeral home in Patterson, doing some general chores. He would sweep, he would wash the cars, run errands, and just handle basic tasks. He also lived in a room above the funeral home, which worked out very well for him. He had a steady job and a solid living arrangement. He was known to refer to the funeral home owner, Ely White, as a father-like figure. And now, around two years after taking this job, it looked like Frankie was the victim of a horrible collision. In running the plate on the car, the police learned that that maverick had been reported stolen in late March, over a week before the accident. The owner, an elderly man, reported it stolen from Newark, which is about 30 minutes from Patterson. The investigator still investigated him, of course, and found that he did have an alibi for that night. It looked like someone was driving around in the stolen car, hit Frankie Pullian, and then ran off, ditching the car and Frankie. But there were a few things at the scene that didn't make a lot of sense within this theory. For one thing, the accident happened between 4 a.m. and 6 a.m. in an industrial area that was nearly two miles from where Frankie lived and worked. Why was he out there walking? 
Frankie did like walking around just to pass the time, but this was an odd time and an odd location. There were also no signs of a collision other than Frankie being under the car. There was no damage to the car, which you would have expected if it hit someone. There were also no skid marks showing that the car stopped short. The car didn't have anti-lock brakes, so you would have expected the driver to slam on the brakes at some point and leave marks. Another issue was where the car was. It was towards the end of a dead-end street facing out. From the end of that road to where the car came to a stop wasn't a very long distance. It seemed unlikely a car could get up to the speed necessary to hit and kill someone from the end of that dead-end road. And then it got even odder when they looked inside the car and found blood in it. There was blood on the inside windshield and on the inside of the passenger side door. If Frankie was hit by the car and the driver fled, how and when did blood get into the car? Because of all the red flags at the scene, the officers took plenty of photographs to document everything. Frankie's body was then transported to the E. Lee White Mortuary, where he worked, because at the time, Passaic County didn't have a county morgue. They contracted with a few different funeral homes, which would act as morgues as needed. This meant the medical examiner, Dr. William Van Voren, went to the funeral home to conduct the autopsy. When Dr. Van Voren arrived, Lee White, the owner, had actually already started the autopsy. This may seem odd that a funeral director would be performing an autopsy, but it really wasn't. Lee was just doing the stuff that an autopsy technician would do, which wasn't outside the scope of his knowledge or training. What was a bit of an overstep was that when Dr. Van Voren arrived, he was told by someone at the funeral home that the police believed this was a hit and run. And as we know, the police at the scene were questioning that. They had not drawn that conclusion. But Dr. Van Voren went with it. He found a head injury and a brain hemorrhage and determined they were consistent with Frankie being struck by a car. Should the driver ever be found, they may be charged with vehicular homicide or manslaughter if the evidence supported negligence, but he ruled it was likely accidental. What Dr. Van Voren didn't do was literally anything else. He didn't speak with the police. He didn't look at the car. He didn't examine Frankie's clothing. He didn't go to the scene or even look at the crime scene photographs. He didn't know about the issues the officer saw at the scene because, frankly, he didn't ask before writing up his report. This was clearly not proper protocol. To their credit, the police did not close the case with the Emmy's report. They weren't going to ignore the evidence because the Emmy made a ruling on a death certificate. They tested the blood on the passenger side of the car, and it was type O, which is what Frankie had, but this was pre-DNA, so they couldn't really match it to him. 
38% of the American population has type O blood. So this wasn't even a near match. It was just a could not be excluded. As the police are running their investigation, another type of investigator came on the scene. This was Melba Kelly, and she worked for Equifax, which was a third-party company that insurance companies used to investigate claims. Because Frankie Pullian, a man with no spouse, no children, no debts, and no assets, had a whole lot of life insurance. The policies Melba was asked to investigate were all less than a year old. And I say policies plural because there were six of them. When investigating a life insurance claim, one of the first people you want to talk to are the beneficiaries. So Melba made arrangements to meet with one of them, Lee White, the owner of the funeral home. He was actually the beneficiary on more than one policy, and the funeral home as a business was also listed. In May of 1980, about six weeks after Frankie's death, Melba met with Lee at the funeral home. Lee explained that they had life insurance on Frankie because he was a key player in the operations of the funeral parlor, and they were actually considering opening a second location that Frankie would then run. While Melba didn't know this at the time, this was a complete fabrication. Frankie was an errand runner. He washed cars. He did simple, small tasks that Lee probably could have had any other employee do. And not only was Frankie not going to run a second location, it wasn't even something he would have been capable of doing. He had absolutely no training in being a mortician or running a business. When meeting with Lee, Melba met someone else who was listed on one of the policies. Lee introduced her as Erna Boone Pullian, Frankie's sister. Having a sister as a beneficiary on a life insurance policy didn't raise any red flags. But Melba would eventually learn that Frankie didn't even have a sister. Erna Boone Pullian was actually Erna Boone White, Lee's wife. Lee hadn't mentioned that he was married to Erna at this meeting where they were trying to pass her off as Frankie's sister. Something even stranger is that Melba later said Frankie's mother was there when she met Erna and never corrected this. According to Melba, she just let this lie slide, and I have no idea what that's about. Erna, as Frankie's supposed sister, knew his medical history, supposedly, and told Melba that Frankie's health had been fine leading up to his death, which was obviously just a tragic accident. And those were more lies. Frankie's health had not been fine. He had a series of health issues and injuries, including just a month before his death. In early March 1980, Frankie was found by a patrolman around 1.30 in the morning, lying in the street, bruised and bleeding. Frankie was transported to the hospital where he was unable to tell the police what happened. It was assumed at the time that he had been mugged. Frankie spent two weeks in the hospital before he was released to go home. And when he went home, they needed a visiting nurse to come help take care of him. 
That's how severe his injuries were. He had a head injury and he was on an anti-seizure medication. And then on April 3rd, five days before his death, Frankie went to the doctor. He was having difficulty walking and the doctor thought he was acting strangely. His symptoms were consistent with an overdose of that anti-seizure medication. The doctor ordered blood tests, which confirmed this. Now, it did seem odd that Frankie would have taken that much of the medication himself, but he was treated and again sent home. None of this was mentioned to the insurance investigator. And it's easy to see why. The insurance policies paid out double and in some cases triple in the event Frankie died in an accident that was entirely not his fault. If he had a head injury or a drug intoxication shortly before his death, the insurance companies could have argued that there was a health-related component to the death. So claiming Frankie was in perfect health would help them collect more life insurance. Melba then asked Lee if he knew someone named on a different policy, a Lawrence Scott. Lee said he didn't know him. And on the life insurance policy application, Lawrence was listed as Frankie's cousin. But I'm sure you can guess that Frankie didn't have a cousin named Lawrence Scott. In June, Melba met with Lawrence and he admitted he was not technically speaking, Frankie's cousin, but they knew each other for eight years and were really close. He said he was listed as the beneficiary because he was the one who gave Frankie the money to pay for the premium, which honestly doesn't make a lot of sense, but whatever. In the end, Melba figured all of this out and learned that Frankie had been in the hospital a month before his death and that he overdosed on a prescription drug less than a week before, and he had other medical issues not disclosed on the applications, like a bout with pancreatitis in 1976 and a severe car crash in 1978. It seems most of the insurance agents, eager to get a commission, didn't do their due diligence and accepted the application claims without question. There was one that insisted on a physical exam of Frankie, and we will get into that one later. But the bulk of these policies were canceled and never paid out due to the applications being full of lies. There was also another policy that listed a man named William Brown as the beneficiary, and this one didn't pay out either. William Brown worked for an insurance company himself, but He was a former employee of the Ely White Funeral Home. Even without the policies that canceled, there were some that paid out to Lee White and the funeral home. Because of the double indemnities, over $100,000 was paid out for the life of a man who earned about $7,500 a year doing odd jobs. But the policies directly to Erna, Lawrence, and William were all voided. Though the insurance investigation had wrapped up, the police investigation continued. 
The case was brought before a grand jury. It was announced in January 1981 that the grand jury had subpoenaed the records from the funeral home. Lee White told the press he didn't know why they wanted them, and his attorney actually attempted to quash the subpoena. The judge ruled against Lee, and he had to turn over some corporate paperwork, which included payroll. The state confirmed to the media that Frankie Pullian's death was being investigated as potential insurance fraud. This wouldn't be the first time Lee White was in trouble for something related to fraud. He had once lost his mortician's license for price-gouging grieving families. And around the time of the grand jury, a woman took him to court claiming he stole her late husband's diamond and gold ring while his body was in the funeral home. Lee was actually cleared in that last case. He was found not responsible, and a funeral home employee, who Lee essentially threw under the bus and who also didn't show up to court to defend himself, was found liable and ordered to pay the cost of the ring. So this grand jury in early 1981 ended without any findings in Frankie Pullian's case. But the prosecutor's office continued to investigate and found that Frankie's death was the result of organized criminal activity. The prosecutor wanted the case to be presented again to another grand jury and asked that a special investigative grand jury be impaneled just for this case. They argued that the case was just too complicated with the various insurance policies the conspiracy between the people named as beneficiaries, and the staging of the crime scene. While Passaic County had three grand juries impaneled at that time and actively hearing cases, they all had a backlog and just did not have time for this one. A judge agreed, and the entire case was presented behind closed doors to a grand jury dedicated solely to this case. The state was able to present their case, showing their evidence that Frankie wasn't killed by being hit by a car, but rather that the scene was staged to look that way, and it was staged in order to collect insurance money. In the spring of 1982, which was two years after Frankie's death, five indictments came down. 41-year-old E. Lee White was charged with murder, theft by deception, forgery, evidence tampering, and two counts of conspiracy. That evidence tampering charge was for concealing or destroying payroll records pertaining to Frankie when he knew the investigation was ongoing. His wife, 41-year-old teacher's aide, Erna White, was charged with murder, theft by deception, two counts of conspiracy, and attempted theft by deception. 36-year-old truck driver Lawrence Scott was charged with murder, two counts of conspiracy, attempted theft by deception, and forgery. And then 47-year-old William Brown was charged with the same. Most of these insurance policies did not pay out in the end. And that is why you hear the attempted theft by deception charges. They had tried to get the insurance money through fraud, but were unable to do so. The grand jury then charged a John Doe with murder because 
they didn't know who in the conspiracy had carried out the actual murder or if it was a fifth person who hadn't yet been named. After the arrests, a civil rights attorney considered taking the case to defend Lee White. While the case was not an obvious civil rights case, he said he took notice of cases where a Black community leader or prominent business owner was arrested. Historically speaking, filing charges is a way the government has used to control the narrative around civil rights leaders, even Martin Luther King. So that is why a civil rights attorney was taking a look at the case. In the end, he did not defend Lee. Instead, he represented Lawrence Scott pro bono. He said Lawrence was the one who needed the most help. And because he was illiterate and naive, there were serious questions about Lawrence's culpability. If Lawrence was involved in this, he may not have been fully aware of the scope of the fraud or any plans to kill Frankie. He, like Frankie, may have been a pawn in the whole thing. And that's if Frankie was even murdered at all. This was a pretty big issue for the state going into the trial. The ME, the medical examiner, said Frankie died from being struck by a car. Their own ME was undermining their case. But that ME had been pushed out of office in 1983 after the state put Passaic County under stewardship due to issues with autopsies and a new medical examiner came in. So in June 1983, with how inadequate the first autopsy was, they exhumed Frankie Pullian's body and a new medical examiner conducted a complete examination. On this autopsy, she found multiple skull fractures from more than one blow to the skull. And none of the head injuries were consistent with being hit by a car. And there were injuries that would normally be seen in a crash that weren't there. Frankie had no broken bones aside from those skull fractures. He had no bruises. He didn't even have road rash from being dragged a little ways. He had none of the hallmarks of being struck by a car. The new ME found that Frankie died from head injuries delivered with a hammer-like object. She ruled this a homicide. Now, the second hurdle the state had was that they wanted to try all four defendants together. There were a few reasons for this. One was the cost. They were going to have to call a large number of witnesses. The initial list was up to 150 people. They needed all of these people to put all of the pieces together to prove the insurance fraud portion of the case. And a lot of those people were going to have to travel from out of state. The other issue was that the cases against each defendant somewhat relied on the others in the alleged conspiracy. Of course, the defendants all wanted their cases severed, but there was a real issue with the case against Lee White and Erna White. These two defendants were married, and New Jersey has a spousal privilege law. And unlike in some jurisdictions, 
The spousal privilege law in New Jersey requires both spouses to have to waive it. It's not just that one spouse can't be forced to testify about communications with the other. It's that they're not allowed to unless both of them agree. There are exceptions when it comes to this law. However, none of them applied here. This situation had never happened. New Jersey never had a married couple charged as co-defendants who, number one, did not want their spouse to testify against them, number two, didn't want to testify against their spouse, and number three, wanted to testify on their own behalf. The state argued that this was not enough to sever the cases. The testimony they gave on their own behalf might not even implicate their spouse. So the state wanted both Lee and Erna to prove that their testimony would implicate the spouse in order to get these severed. The trial judge initially ordered the cases to be severed, and the state appealed this decision. During the appeals process, Erna, in private, had to reveal what her testimony would be. The Superior Court judge then wrote in his decision that, quote, I find that Mrs. White intends to testify in her own defense at the trial and that her testimony, whether elicited on direct examination or cross-examination, would incriminate her co-defendant's spouse, end quote. And then he ruled that Erna White would be tried separately from her husband, Lee. Lee, Lawrence Scott, and William Brown would all stand trial together. So basically, the Superior Court judge heard, behind closed doors, what Erna planned to say and found that it was going to implicate Lee, and that is clue number one, that there was going to be some throwing-under-the-bus action happening. But hearing Erna's story, hearing her testimony, would have to wait, because the trial of the three men went first. While murder was, of course, the most serious charge here, all of the fraud and theft-related charges were presented at the same time. And since the insurance fraud was also the motive for the murder, both had to be presented in great detail. The prosecutor put up a large poster board during opening statements that was just covered with information about all these insurance policies. She was able to show the jury that all of the policies were taken out in the eight months prior to Frankie's death, starting in August 1979, with the last policy being taken out on April 3, 1980, which was just days before Frankie was killed. Various sources give a different number of total policies, but the Herald News, which was covering the trial day by day, reported that the state presented that there were 12 policies total from nine different companies using eight different insurance agents. Eight policies were taken out in a 10-day period in February 1980, around two months before Frankie's death. And once you add up all the double and triple payouts, they were set to collect around $900 thousand dollars in 1980s money, which would be about three million dollars today. 
Only about 100000 had paid out because all those others canceled when they learned the findings of Melba Kelly's investigation about Frankie's health issues. The prosecutor laid out the theory of the crime. Lee White, who ran a funeral home, knew a bit about life insurance policies. He decided to find a mark, someone he could insure and then kill to collect on the money. Frankie Pullian was perfect for this because he was vulnerable. He didn't have a spouse or children. He had family, but no one he was really close to who might catch on to what was going on. He was easily swayed, and he trusted Lee White. It's not clear how many of these policies Frankie knew about, but it was possible he actually did participate in at least some of these policy applications. He didn't realize that he was being set up. He was taken advantage of because of his disability. Once Frankie was overly insured, he was lured into the stolen car under some pretense. While in the car, someone hit him on the head with an unknown object. The police never determined exactly who killed him. By attacking Frankie in the car, blood was left behind. Someone cleaned the car, wiping down all of the fingerprints, but they did miss some blood spots. After Frankie was dead, they pulled his body from the car, lying him down on the deserted road in the early morning hours. They then drove the car over his body. Frankie's clothes did not have tire treads on them, but they did have some motor oil and other dirt from under the car. So they didn't run him over, but rather just positioned the car over him. The killer then ditched the car, not realizing that they had left the blood inside and also had left some blood behind the car, which shouldn't have been there if Frankie had been hit by the front of the car. So the state promised the jury that they would prove two things. First, that a murder took place, and second, that the defendants were also guilty of insurance fraud or at least attempted insurance fraud. To prove the murder, they had an informant named Dylan testify that he saw a friend talking to Lee White and then saw that friend drive the stolen car away from the funeral home's garage. The defense jumped on Dylan's credibility, pointing out that he was facing an assault charge in an unrelated case when he decided to speak with the police about what he allegedly saw. But Dylan was a pretty reluctant witness, to say the least. The judge had considered holding him in jail on a material witness warrant since he was trying to dodge the subpoena. Dylan said he received a threatening note warning him against testifying, and he decided that the threat was a viable one. The judge did ask to see the note, but Dylan said he hadn't kept it. So it was basically only under the threat of going to jail that Dylan testified to what he saw. Dylan's testimony was incredibly important to the state because he was the only one who could connect Lee White to the stolen car, which was necessary to prove the murder. 
The state then called their old medical examiner to the stand. They had to get in front of those initial findings because that was really what the defense had against them. It directly contradicted their murder case. So by getting the old medical examiner to essentially recant his findings on the stand would help them. And another thing that helped them was the Emmy's credentials. He was not a forensic pathologist. He wasn't any kind of pathologist. He was a general medical practitioner, meaning he wasn't specifically trained as a medical examiner. The ME testified that when he arrived at the funeral home to conduct the autopsy, the employee told him that the police believed this was a hit-and-run accident, which is not what they believed. After he looked at the new autopsy and the information from the investigation, he said he would have ruled it a homicide if he had all of that information at the time. Of course, the defense painted this as him just changing his testimony to fit the state's case, which you can understand how it looks that way. But then the state brought in the new medical examiner to the stand, and they leaned hard into her credentials, which were more than adequate, and she explained her findings. The state then had three other experts. One was a traffic collision reconstruction expert, and the other two also had training in car crash investigations. They testified that this was not a collision. There were no signs Frankie was ever hit by a car, not a single one on his body, his clothing, or on the car. At Frankie's height, a car striking him while he was standing would hit his legs, bruising and possibly breaking his legs. He would have then gone on top of the car's hood, likely leaving a dent. He then would have rolled off of the hood and landed next to the car, not under the rear tires. The lack of injuries to the legs and lack of damage to the front of the car told them that Frankie wasn't struck by the car. The lack of tire tracks tell them that he wasn't run over. It looks like he was lying down and someone drove the car so it passed over him and then stopped. And you don't die from a car driving above you if it doesn't actually hit you. So that was a chunk of proving the murder case, proving that a murder had even happened. They then also had to prove the insurance fraud, so they had multiple insurance agents testify. The state was in an interesting position here because they had to impeach some of their own witnesses. The fact was that some of these agents didn't do their due diligence in writing and issuing their policies. So they were reluctant to be fully forthcoming on these details that made them look bad. For instance, some agents testified that they were the ones who initiated the sale, meeting with Frankie in person. They weren't called by Frankie, Lee, or anyone else. But it's also a little hard to believe that multiple insurance agents in less than a year pursued life insurance on a man who made $7,500 a year. But that was their story. 
The state pointed out that some of these agents knew Lee White, either through social or business connections. But they still insisted, some of them anyway, that it was Frankie's idea to buy the policies and Frankie's idea on who to name as his beneficiaries. Some even said Lee was not at the meetings they had with Frankie. But then the state had a handwriting expert to say that Frankie did not sign all of the policies. And there is even solid evidence that someone stood in for Frankie at least once, but likely more often. For one thing, one insurance agent testified that he did not recognize a picture of Frankie as the person who bought the policy from him. The man he met didn't look much like Frankie at all. Now, the defense said the agent didn't recognize him because he didn't actually sell Frankie the policy. Another agent did, and this insurance agent was taking the credit and the commission. The insurance agent denied this, and the defense did not provide any proof of this claim, like the actual agent they think sold the policy. But we actually have more concrete proof that there was a fake Frankie involved. On April 3rd, 1980, the last insurance policy taken out required a physical from a doctor. This policy was for $100,000, with William Brown being named the beneficiary. The doctor who examined Frankie did so at the funeral home and gave him a clean bill of health. But at the exact moment, Frankie, Frankie with air quotes, was getting that exam, Actual Frankie was getting blood work done at a lab on the order of his doctor. This was that day Frankie went to the doctor with difficulty with coordination and walking, along with strange behavior, and they found that he had taken too much of the anti-seizure medication. Lab work is time-stamped when it is drawn, and Frankie was for sure having a blood draw done while Frankie was also being examined by a doctor for a life insurance policy. And if there is any doubt that these times overlapped, the insurance company doctor recorded that Frankie had no health concerns on the same day he was dealing with an acute drug reaction. The doctor who examined the fake Frankie had testified that he noticed some odd things during this exam. Frankie had notes he would refer to when he was asked questions about his medical history, and sometimes Lee would jump in and answer for him. This doctor also pointed to a picture of one of Frankie's brothers as the man who sat for the exam. Though the authorities said that This brother was not involved in the conspiracy. They have not elaborated on how they ruled him out from knowingly helping in the scam, just that they did. But the idea that they passed off a healthy fake Frankie to a doctor is also part of one of the charges Lee was facing alone. If you remember all the documents the first grand jury subpoenaed, they included payroll records. What they were looking at were Frankie's payroll records. Lee produced some of the records and had coincidentally lost some others, but the records he did provide included some checks he claimed were Frankie's paychecks, but they were actually written to other people. 
Lee had doctored the books to make it look like he was paying Frankie in March, a time when Frankie was in the hospital after the quote-unquote mugging incident. Lee was trying to cover up the fact that he knew Frankie was not in perfect health, like he told the insurance agents. Now, the state did present the mugging incident to the jury, but they did not frame it as an attempt on Frankie's life from the same people. They brought it up in regards to being left off the insurance applications. But the implication was definitely there, especially since most of the insurance policies were purchased about a month before the mugging. The state did the same thing when they presented the drug overdose. They were using it to show something else, but also the implication was just out there that maybe this was another attempt on Frankie's life. They didn't come out and say it, but think about it. Why would Frankie have knowingly taken too much of his medication and then gone to the doctor unsure of why he was having these symptoms? Perhaps he accidentally took too much, but this isn't the amount you would have in your system because you took one extra pill because you forgot you had already taken it. It seemed like it was more than that. Or was he possibly drugged to get him out of the way so they could bring the fake Frankie in for the examination? This does make me think of that story, the durable Mike Malloy. I wrote about it for Rusty Hinges if you want to hear more about it. Maybe I'll record a Crime Lines version one day. But it's a case where it took several attempts for these people to kill a man who they kind of set up in a similar fashion. So now the defense to this was, we didn't do it. All three defendants had their own attorneys, and while William and Lawrence definitely tried to distance themselves from Lee White, who had the most evidence against him, they were pretty united in this defense. Frankie was the one who took out all those insurance policies. He liked to play the big shot. Frankie had a habit of walking around alone, and it's perfectly believable that he was on a dead-end street at 4 or 5 a.m. in an industrial area. They called their own expert who testified that Frankie's injury could have been caused by a car's shock absorber near the tire striking his skull, and that would have left multiple fractures from one blow, and it wouldn't have left damage on the car. But I mean, that still doesn't explain how Frankie ended up on the ground for the car to then drive over him. The defense did ask to have Frankie's body exhumed again for a third autopsy that they could have their expert perform or at least attend to look for signs of this possible shock absorber hitting his skull, but the judge denied it. Lee did testify in his own defense and denied he killed Frankie or that he had anyone kill him. He said he didn't even know that Frankie had taken out so many insurance policies. He only knew about two of them, even though more than two agents said Lee was there when Frankie signed. Lee explained that his wife, Erna, had a sibling-like relationship with Frankie, and that's why Frankie wrote that she was his sister on this insurance application. They weren't trying to fake a relationship because why would they? There's no law saying that life insurance can only go to a relative. Frankie could have filled out that she was his friend, and it really wouldn't have changed things. 
But this was undermined a little by a previous state witness. One of the insurance agents testified that he gave some pushback when supposed Frankie listed a friend on the application instead of a family member. So Frankie then listed his brother as a secondary beneficiary. I do think it's possible that they would have used a fake family relationship on other applications to avoid these types of questions of why are you not leaving the money to your family. Like I said, William and Lawrence attempted to distance themselves from Lee to some extent and downplay their connection to him. Being connected to Lee was the link to Frankie, the scam, and the murder. There was not a lot of direct evidence linking Lee to the actual murder, and even less with William and Lawrence. Their link to Lee was essentially their link to the murder. This was a fairly circumstantial case in the end, because even though the forensics proved a murder happened, it didn't connect any of the men directly to the murder. But the jury found the circumstantial evidence compelling. They found all three men guilty on all charges against them, except one of the charges that Lee had for attempted theft by deception. But of the 20-plus total charges between all of the defendants, this was the only acquittal, and it was probably the least serious charge. At sentencing, the state pointed out how sad this case was, that Frankie thought these were his friends, and they killed him for money. The judge agreed, saying that it was absolute, pure greed behind the murder of Frankie Pullian. And I think that's something worth mentioning again. Lee White did not have to hire Frankie full-time and give him a place to live. Any employee could have fit in most of Frankie's tasks in their regular schedule. So Lee was seen as kind for giving this young man a job and a home, but instead, he set him up to be murdered. Though all three men continued to maintain their innocence, Lee White, the mastermind, was sentenced to 25 years to life, William Brown got 20 to life, and Lawrence Scott got 15 to life. And then they were all sent to prison. Then a few months later, in July, a man came forward to confess that he was the one who actually killed Frankie Pullian. This man, Ricky Moore, was serving a long sentence at Trenton State Prison for armed robbery. He wrote to Lee White's attorney saying that he read about the case in the paper and he wanted to confess to being the one who killed Frankie. More than that, he wanted everyone to know that Lee White had nothing to do with it. The attorney met with Ricky to hear his full story, which Ricky said he was prompted to provide after he found God. Ricky was housed in the same prison as Lee, but he started out by denying he had any friendship or connection to Lee. He was really, truly doing this to clear his conscience and to get right with God. Ricky said that it was April 7th or 8th of 1980 when he stole a car in New York City. He was high on drugs and drove it to Patterson, where he lived. He said that Frankie jumped out in front of the car and he hit him. Ricky got out of the car and he tried to get Frankie out from under the car, but he couldn't move him. He got scared and he ran. 
Lee's attorney documented this confession and used it as the basis for a motion for a new trial. But there were some issues with this confession. For one thing, the car was stolen from Newark, not New York. Ricky also claimed he stole the car on the day of Frankie's death, but the car had been reported stolen over a week before. So did Ricky really just so happen to steal a car in New York that had already been stolen previously in Newark? It's possible, but it doesn't seem likely. And Ricky had no explanation for how blood got into the car. If that was Frankie's blood, which it likely was, circumstantially speaking, Ricky never said he got back into the car after trying to get Frankie out from under the car. And then, of course, we're still left with all the other issues around presenting this case as a car collision, the lack of damage to the car and the lack of injuries to Frankie's body. Lee's motion for a new trial was denied, not just because of the inconsistencies in Ricky's story. It's mostly because, months later, in January 1986, They searched Ricky's cell and found a bunch of notes from Lee to Ricky, giving him details of what happened to Frankie. One note even instructed Ricky not to mention that he knew Lee when he was confessing. Ricky had been offered money and a car when he got out of prison if he would take the rap and help Lee get a new trial. Another inmate named Greg came forward and said he was actually approached by Lee before Ricky was, and he was also asked to confess. Lee offered to pay Greg's bail if he would do this, and it was towards the end of the summer of 1985 that Greg contacted the prosecutor about it. So this is around the same time Ricky was writing to Lee's attorney. So Lee did not get a new trial for the murder of Frankie Pullian, but he did get a new trial because a grand jury indicted him with a charge of tampering with a witness. He was convicted and five years was added to his sentence. And all of this publicity pushed Erna's trial out even further. She was free on bail raising her seven-year-old, who was just a toddler when Frankie was killed, and her attorney did not want Lee's bad press to prejudice a jury against Erna, so they just kept delaying the trial. When she finally did go to trial, the newspapers really could have pretty much just reprinted their articles from the first trial because the state's case was essentially the same. But we know from the decision to sever the cases that Erna's defense would be quite different than Lee's because she intended to implicate him in the crime. Erna testified that she knew nothing about the plan to kill Frankie. And she went along with the rest of it with the insurance scheme because she was afraid of her husband. Erna told the jury that her marriage was in a bad place at that point, and she was afraid Lee was going to kick her out if she didn't do what he said. She was pretty much just following his orders. Erna also testified that the only policy she knew about before Frankie's death was the one with her name on it. It was worth about $20,000, and she admitted she lied on the application, saying she was Frankie's sister. This is something that's come up in other cases we've talked about. If you're going to take the stand, you will be more believable on the major points 
if you don't lie on the smaller ones. The jury could see Erna's name and the word sister on the insurance form, denying it or doing like Lee did and saying they meant sister in a more figurative sense would undermine her credibility. Erna was either convincing from the stand or the state simply could not connect her to the murder because she was acquitted on that charge. She was convicted of the attempted theft by deception, which was punishable by probation, as it was her first offense. Erna sobbed as she realized she was going to get to go home to her son. I think this case really shows us the advantages and disadvantages of trying defendants together. For the state, they saved money having fewer trials and were able to link the conspiracy more easily. For the defense, at least Erna's defense, the separate trials gave her enough distance from Lee that the jury found reasonable doubt. You have to wonder if Lawrence Scott and William Brown would have had a different outcome if they also had their trials severed. Lawrence Scott was paroled in 2001 after 16 years in prison. He must have had some type of violation because his record shows he went back in for a few months before being released again. William Brown was paroled in 2009 after just shy of 25 years behind bars. Lee White was paroled in April 2018 after 33 years in prison. He died a year later at the age of 79. One of the things that really interested me in this case and why I started digging into it was that it had some issues we see with cases that go unsolved or even cases we've never heard of. Frankie didn't have family pushing for an investigation. Frankie didn't have friends pushing for it. He had a powerful and respected boss who ended up with some control over the early narrative as to what happened here. And yet, this case got solved. It got solved because of the officers at the scene who knew something didn't seem right, and they followed through. And they kept following through, even when the medical examiner was against them. They didn't get focused on an early theory or tunnel vision. They did what should happen in a good investigation, and because of it, Franklin Pullian got justice. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok. Crimelines is on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes, as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for.